listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. This is the Mill Sunday School. Welcome. Um, this is the place where we kind of go a little deeper into study, and uh, you'll, you'll probably end up taking notes, especially today. We have a guest speaker today. His name is Glenn Packiam. Um He's, he's a really big deal. He's written like three books, right? If I can name them all. Butterfly, Butterfly in Brazil, uh, the Secondhand Jesus, and his new book that just came out, Lucky. And so those are awesome books. Um, and so he doesn't need too much of an introduction. Was anybody here when Glenn used to lead worship for the mill? Any old, t- old schoolers? Sweet. Um, but today's lesson, to, to preface today's lesson, I, re- I remember hearing this lesson about a year ago as Glenn gave it. It's, it's a bigger idea of making sense of Scripture, different ways we can look at the Bible, and then he might get to it either this week or next week, this, the Bible as a six part, a six-part act, and it's, it's an incredible lesson. I remember listening to the lesson and just like, whoa, I want to learn more about this. I've never heard this, the whole picture of the Bible presented in such a clear and crisp way, and so I went out and got the book uh, by N.T. Wright that Glenn formulated his lesson on, and I figuratively devoured the book because I just thought it was awesome. And so today, if you find yourself writing down tons of notes like I first did when I heard this lesson, um, I, the, the, the notes, the, this big picture of, of the Bible as Scripture, because that's this whole month's topic, the narrative of Scripture. Um, it blew me away when I first kind of got my mind figuratively around this big picture of the Bible. So, um, without any further ado, Glenn Packham, everybody. Thank you, Joe. How's everybody doing today? You all right? You good? Um, it's great to be with you on this morning. Thanks for coming out on the holiday weekend and all that. Happy in advance, 4th of July to you. It was a year and a half ago that I, you know, swore in as a naturalized citizen of this great country. So, booyah. Now, I was born in Malaysia, for those of you who don't know, if you're wondering. I was born in Malaysia, which, uh, yeah, the flag's not on this wall. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, but uh, it's about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back around. And uh, Anyway, Malaysia used to be a British colony, so I grew up speaking English. That was kind of no, no big deal. But I lived in the States when I was 10 until I was 13. My parents went to Bible school out here. Huge leap of faith uh, for them to move our family out to the States. Uh, and then we moved back to Malaysia. I finished out my high school years there and then came back to the States when I was 17 to go to college, and, uh, and I've been here ever since, 16 years later, so I'm 33, there you go, save you some math on a Sunday morning, all right? Uh, we're talking this month about the Bible, and um, it's such a wonderful topic, and I think obviously, you know, if you've been around church even a, a week or two, you kind of get the sense that uh, the Bible is important to us as Christians, or important to our journey and uh, if you're like me and you grew up in a Christian family, you've known that the Bible is sort of this thing that, yeah, we've got to read it and we've got to, uh, you know, do this. And, and yet, reading our Bible is one of those things that we could all make a case for. We are convinced that we need to. We are convinced that it's important. Uh, it's not that we don't believe it's important. And yet, there seems to be this tension because as convinced as we are of how important it is to read our Bibles... Yet, if we're honest, we struggle to actually read it, right? So I'm not going to embarrass anybody and say, well, how many of you read your Bible, you know, at least once a week? Because the, the point is not so much, okay, how can, we, you know, can we embarrass someone or get you to do the right things? What I'm hopeful for and what I think Joe is hopeful for, 
for this month and talking about the big story of Scripture is what maybe we can eliminate some of the barriers that prevent us from reading the Bible. Uh, probably what happens to most of us is we say, no, I would like to read the Bible, and I think that that's important, and that's what Christians are supposed to do. And maybe you grew up uh, in children's church where the song was, you know, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. You ever sang that? They sang that in my children's church. Cameron, thank you. Okay. So, so we know this is what we're supposed to do, but what is it that makes it so difficult? Well, maybe part of it is that we open up a book of the Bible and we start reading and then we think, oh yeah, this is great, like I can understand Matthew, you know, this is a story of Jesus' life and this makes sense and yeah, I get it, and, oh, okay, cool, you know. And then you think, one day you think, you know, I'm going to be a little braver, I'm going to flip over and I'm going to read, you know, um, Jeremiah, that sounds like a cool book, you know, and you find yourself reading these strange prophecies or maybe you're reading Ezekiel and there's some, he's laying on his side for years in a row and you're like, well, what is going on here, you know, and maybe you find yourself in Chronicles and you're reading genealogies and you're thinking, oh goodness, like what is this, this is, you know, and you love Jesus and you know that when you come to worship times, thanks for coming into the front room tables, by the way. I won't spit on you if you sit up here, I promise, but it might make it easier if you, if you come closer if you want to. Um, but you, you know, you love Jesus, you go to worship times, and you're passionate, and you go to prayer meetings, and it all feels good, but somehow opening this and reading this is harder because we're so removed from it, and it just seems like, I, I don't know how to make sense of this. And it, it's understandable to some degree because uh, a genealogy is not an irrelevant thing if your family name is in it, you know? If you're the son of so-and-so and then it's your story, all of a sudden the genealogy becomes one of the highlighted portions of Scripture. But for a lot of us, it's hard to make sense of that. And maybe another reason why reading the Bible or studying the Bible becomes problematic is, is even from an outsider perspective, it seems like Christians just pull pieces from the Bible that they want to listen to and ignore the passages they don't want to listen to, right? Um, maybe a couple years ago, this guy is not, he doesn't write for the Gazette anymore, but he used to be the pulpit uh, blog uh, columnist here in Colorado Springs. And, and he accused churches, he accused pastors of, of cherry picking, of, of picking their favorite passages. And he says, oh, look, you know, they'll pick this passage that says, uh, you, you know, in Leviticus or whatever, that says homosexuality is a sin, but then they'll ignore the other passage in Leviticus that says, so is eating shellfish or, or shrimp, you know. So a bunch of Christians will go to Red Lobster while they picket against gay marriage, for example. And this is what he's saying. And he's saying, oh, look, you guys are inconsistent. You know, it's not, you're, you're just picking the passages that you want to follow. And for most of us as Christians, in, in fact, I heard, unfortunately, some pastors trying to respond uh, to that accusation uh, and, and, and unfortunately didn't do a great job at responding to it. But a lot of us as Christians, we hear that stuff and we think, yeah, that's true. Well, I guess I don't really know. I guess I don't really know how to make sense of Scripture. And so maybe because it's hard to make sense of Scripture on our own, maybe because it's hard to make sense of Scripture as a church, maybe because we, we're not sure what to do with this book, we, we have nice, shiny leather Bibles that indicate how much we value it, and yet it remains on a shelf, which reminds us of how difficult it is to actually read it. Is that where most of us are? Maybe it is. 
I have the sense that it's where a lot of Christians are, and there's no shame in this. It just means that guys like Joe and I have to do a better job at helping us devour the Bible, you know. And so um, I, I, I want to start, I'll give you kind of the title slide. The title of our, of our discussion this morning is Making Sense of Scripture. And we're going to, to, to try to say what are some ways that we can approach the Bible. Here's uh, my name, yeah. I had fun kind of making a keynote. I don't normally make keynote, but Joe encouraged me to do that. And so, I don't know, is that blur? Can you see that? Yeah, there you go. Uh, the next slides are all with the white background, so the words will be hopefully clear. I, I was blessed to grow up in a home uh, where I had parents that, that loved the Bible. And uh, because, in fact, they were, when they were going to Bible school, I was 10, um, my sister was 13. Very often we'd sit around at the dinner table and they would talk to us about the things that they were learning, you know. And, and uh, my mom in particular was uh, just, she was just fascinated by the Old Testament. And uh, later on when we moved back to Malaysia and I was homeschooling my high school years there, my mom taught in our church's Bible college and she taught these Old Testament classes. So I would try to get my, you know, math homework or whatever homework done in time so I could go sit in on her class and listen to her talk about uh, Israel under David or Israel under Solomon and what happens to Israel and Judah and all of this stuff. And, and from an early age was, was fascinated by it. One of the main questions we have to ask ourselves when we talk about reading the Bible is, how do we approach this book? What kind of a book is this? And I want to list for you five common approaches uh, to reading the Bible and then have you discuss maybe a little bit at your tables uh, which approach you found yourself leaning towards and and the strengths and weaknesses of that. Um, first of all, I want to say this. Of these five approaches, I, I think that, that um, there's something probably good about each one, and you can understand why we uh, take a certain approach to, to it. Uh, however, I, I get the sense that none of these five are quite it. The first one is this, to treat the Bible like a textbook, and so we read for information. This is probably not what most of us do, but a lot of times, let's say if you went to a, um, a, 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 a university where you were studying a religion degree or something like that, where they weren't necessarily saying we believe in Jesus, we're not Christian, but we're studying religion or the theory of religion or philosophy, and so Jesus is a remarkable philosopher. So you're reading the Bible for information about what Jewish people said about God. Does that make sense? And so you're not really trying to say, yeah, this is... A, a holy book. This is just a textbook. This is a book that I can get information from. Okay. Well, another approach, and maybe we're getting closer to some of the ways we read the Bible, is to treat it like a cookbook. Now, some of you would say, what? Now, I've never, like, there's no recipes in here. No, no, not like food recipes. But some of us treat the Bible like a cookbook in the way that we sort of imagine that there are bullet points and secrets and recipes in here for a successful life. And so maybe you think, you've, you've heard a sermon that says, five keys to finding your spouse. You know, and you're like, oh, man, that's awesome. Or, or, or maybe, you know, you, you, you've heard another sermon, that says, oh, three keys to, to getting the job of your dreams. You're like, oh, this is amazing. I love church. And then you decide, well, I'm going to read my Bible. I love church so much. I'm going to read my Bible. And you're like, where are the five keys in here? Which chapter is it that has the recipe? And so no one really knows. And so you think, well, Proverbs, that's the closest thing to it. And so we read a proverb and it says, oh, well, you know, a proverb says, you know, if I will do this, then this will happen. And okay, perfect. Well, there you go. There's my little 
recipe for success. Except that Proverbs isn't written like a recipe. And in fact, if you took the whole Bible in, uh, the Bible as a whole, which I love the quote, by the way, of A.W. Tozer on your little skillet uh, bulletin here, talking about how it's the whole Bible that's necessary to make a whole Christian. If you took the Proverbs even within themselves, there's one proverb that says, don't rebuke a fool or he'll hate you. And then a couple verses later it says, go ahead and rebuke a fool in his folly lest he perish. Well, which am I supposed to do? Which is the recipe here? Is it two eggs or one egg? You know? Uh, is it 350 degrees in the oven or is it 425? Which is it? One, one fa- uh, Dr. Hubbard, who's, who's the Old Testament chair at Fuller Seminary, is named after him, uh, once remarked that Proverbs kind of tells you, uh, th- if you live this way, life will work out. And Lamentations and Ecclesiastes basically say, we did and it didn't. You know, and you have to take the Bible as a whole to say, you know what, there's tensions between, if I'm going to see this as a whole, as a recipe book, we're in trouble. Because that's not fundamentally what this book is. Now, does it mean there's not principles in here? No, there are principles. But as a whole, is this a recipe book? No. And yet, that tends to be a common approach. Uh, Maybe a, a more common approach is to treat the Bible like a coffee table book. And oftentimes, if you go into a home, that is where the Bible is sitting. You know, you've got like beautiful scenes of American, uh, the American heartland or whatever. And then there's the leather Bible, you know, as if we'd one day pick it up and say, hey, darling, let's just read a little inspiration. And then God said, slaughter the Amalekite. Oh, God. OK, let's just uh, put that down. It doesn't work as a very good coffee table book. And yet we want it to be chicken soup for the Christian soul. I want this to be a story that just I can read for inspiration. Now, certainly there are stories like that. I think the book of Ruth is a beautiful, inspiring love story. I just taught on it last week at the Sunday night service. We're doing a series now of the short books in the Bible based on a person's life that speak to us about something. We did Nehemiah, we did did Ruth. Tonight we're doing Daniel. Next week we'll do Esther. There are these beautiful stories, beautifully told stories that certainly are meant to inspire. I'm not saying there's nothing in here that, of course it does. But as a whole, could we treat the Bible like a coffee table book as a whole? Can we say that, yeah, this is just kind of what I read for inspiration. I just need a pick-me-up. Now, I appreciate refrigerator magnets. I do, I do. I have some in my home. I grew up in a home with, with scripture verses on refrigerator magnets. I, I, I like them. They're, they're good. They're, it's a good way. Memorizing scripture is better than not memorizing scripture. The trouble is when the only scriptures we know are the scriptures that work well on a refrigerator magnet. If that's the only scriptures you know, you might be fooled into thinking that the Bible is just full of little sayings that lift you up, that pick you up. One of the... F- favorite ones is Jeremiah 29 11, right? I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Oh, praise God. Love it. It's true. It's absolutely 100% true. But do you know what Jeremiah 29 is as a whole? What is it? What's the background here? It's a letter to the people of Judah as they're going into exile. What's exile? You know where the Babylonians came and carried them off as slaves 
took him to live in Babylon for lots and lots and lots of years, for several generations. And they lived there. And as they're going into exile, as life is about to get to its worst, God is saying, I just want you to know this is not the end. Now that truly is encouraging, isn't it? But if you see it in its broad setting, it's actually more encouraging than if you just picked it out as a verse for a magnet, which is a good magnet, and then without the context began to imagine that God's will for you is always good things and never bad things. Well, certainly that couldn't be true if they were actually going into exile. Does that make sense? And so what we begin to see is, look, there might be difficult times. There may be moments in our lives where we will feel like we're living in Babylon, where we're being drawn away into this or that. And maybe it's discipline. Maybe it's just life. Maybe it's the fallen world. Maybe it's all of that combined. But the point is this, that, it's, it's never, that suffering's never the last word. And so there actually is inspiration in the Bible, but it's much deeper and richer than the little nuggets that we try to just pull from it. Does that make sense? There actually is encouragement and life that we get from the Scriptures, but we find it as we see the big picture, not in just picking little phrases that we can memorize and say, these are truisms. Does that make sense? This isn't Ben Franklin's almanac of of good sayings. You know, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man, oh, good, let's just pick a few of those. And again, which is why we're drawn to Proverbs. Proverbs is great, but the whole Bible is not Proverbs. Does that make sense? Okay, so as a whole, we can't treat it like a coffee table book. The next, there's, this, there's some people who treat the Bible as a magic book, and you read it for secret power. Um, it, it's, it's funny because in the time of the first century, there actually was uh, a sect of a, of a Greek religion called Gnosticism, or philosophy called Gnosticism, where the whole idea of the Gnostic thing was from that word gnosis, knowledge. Uh, it was about some secret hidden mystery or knowledge. And the church, the early Christians, had to fight Gnosticism and and to say, look, what we're saying is very different than what the Gnostics are saying, and there's some differences. But But still, even 2,000 years later, there are a lot of Christians who have Gnostic tendencies. And that is, what I mean is this. We look at the Bible and says, there's a secret code in here. There's a magic formula in here. And if I say these words and these prayers six times with this way, maybe if I skip dinner and then say it, then God will do what I want him to do. I want to point out, just as a side note, that there's a difference between magic and miracles. In fact, as a separate fascinating study, you could study this in the book of Acts because Luke is quite intent on showing us the difference between magic and miracles. He does the encounter, remember, with the magician who wants to buy the power, and Luke kind of says, uh, no, or Luke has, tells a story of, of, of uh, Paul, isn't it, saying, no, look, this is not how it works, or is it Peter? And, uh, and, and they're trying to contrast for us magic and miracles. Do you know what the difference is? Let me say it to you in a nutshell. Magic is a way for you to be in control. Miracles is God showing that he rules. That's the big difference. When a miracle happens, it's God breaking in and saying, I rule, it's my kingdom, it's my will, and I'm the one in charge. Bam! And he breaks in to earth. Your kingdom come, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Magic is when humans say, I'd like to make things go my way, so can I, can I control my life? Many Christians try to make the Bible work like magic. And I would suggest that that is really trying to be in charge. 
That's really not surrendering to Jesus as Lord. That's just trying to use Jesus as your magic wand. And the Bible as your abracadabra book of spells. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Many of us, when we come to the Lord, we still want to be in the driver's seat. We're just hoping that Jesus is a faster car. We still want to be in the driver's seat. We're just hoping that Jesus is now a Ferrari, so he'll make my life work better, quicker, faster. If I just, what's the secret prayer? Is it this one? Is it, the, is it, is it Jabez? Is it this? And again, not, I'm not, nothing wrong with those things per se, but sometimes what we do to those things makes it more damaging. And we lift it up and say, oh, well, maybe this is the secret code. And we're looking for ways, if we're honest, we're looking for ways to control our lives. We're looking for ways to say, what's the thing that I can do to avoid sickness, to make sure that nothing bad ever happens? What's the, what's the prayer that I can say with enough faith, with enough this, and mix it with a bat's wing and a cat's nose, and, you know, and make sure that nothing bad will ever happen to me? And is it in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, or, you know? There's all kinds of weird stuff, but at the root of it is this desire to say, I want to control my life. I don't want anything bad to happen to me. I don't want this to do this. So, so God, what's the secret power to, make, to keep me in control? And the Bible refuses that sort of approach. It asks us to bow. It calls us to surrender. It calls us to acknowledge that God is in control and that we are not. In many ways, I think Eugene Peterson talks about this, in many ways, sometimes we should, instead of imagining ourselves standing over the Bible looking for things that we can pull and use, we should imagine that we are standing under it and saying, God, what is your, how can your word change me? What is your word trying to do in my life as opposed to what can I find in your word to get what I want. Do you see the difference in posture? It's not that there's not power in the Bible. There is power in the Bible. But as a whole, as a whole approach, it can lead us in some funny paths. Uh, The fifth thing here, maybe one of the most prevalent approaches, is to read the Bible as a rule book. To read it for commands. To say, well, okay, well, this is the rule book. This is how we're supposed to live. And come on now, let's, you know, And certainly there's something true about that. There are principles, there are commands in the Bible. And there's no doubt about it. We don't need to be ashamed about that. That's certainly true. In in fact, uh, even in the Old Testament, you see the psalmist saying, I love your commands. I've learned to delight in them and to embrace them. And in the New Testament, we we know that until we have Jesus in our hearts and with his grace, until we have his spirit working in us, we can't even begin to obey his commands. But the commands don't disappear, right? Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, look, we're not not saved by works, but we are saved for it. And so there there are these commands that matter, and we, we are supposed to think of it that way. It's just that to read the Bible as a whole, as a rule book, is difficult, isn't it? Maybe a phrase to write down, I should have put this in your notes, but a phrase to write down is the words descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive is telling you what happened, right? Prescriptive is telling you what should happen, what to do. This is how you should live. And so the question, especially with the Old Testament, is how much of the Old Testament is descriptive or prescriptive? Probably a lot of it is descriptive. Uh, you know, when you get into the New Testament, Paul's letters, okay, there's more that's prescriptive, you know, for sure. 
But we're, we're wrestling with, as a whole, can I treat the Bible as prescriptive, as a whole? What if I treat it as a rule book? As well, well you'd, run into, you'd run into what this religion blogger for, or religion columnist for the Colorado Springs Gazette said. Well, then you're cherry-picking your rules. You're saying no to homosexuality, but you're saying yes to crabs and shrimp and lobsters. What's up, man? How come you're eating bacon, you know? Bacon. Like, um, uh, uh, well, maybe some of the rules changed. Uh, if we view this fundamentally as a rule book, we're, we've got problems. Secondly, if we view it as a rule book, we really shouldn't have denominations because somebody's got to be right and everyone else wrong, right? How many arguments have you heard in church where people says, well, let's just go back to what the Bible says, okay? And the other guy says, totally, let's go. And they both make their case from the Bible, and you're like, I have no idea. And then, and then you say, I don't even want to read this thing, because everyone just argues about it all the time, right? And so many people say, well, let's appeal, let's just go back to what the Bible says, as if the Bible is the great official rule book of the royal court, you know? As if this was like England or something, where you can look back and say, now what was written, this is the decree of the king, Every page doesn't read like a decree of the king. And so we have these nuances and interpretations and someone saying maybe it's this way and Calvin saying this and Wesley saying this and you say, well, yes. So well, it's not fundamentally a rule book, is it? Now, just as an aside, that doesn't mean we don't know what we believe. One of the reasons we say the Nicene Creed each week on the Sunday night service is because the Nicene Creed is the core of what Christians believe across every denomination. It's what binds Christians together and marks Christians from other, um, say, things that are, or religions that, that approximate Christianity but are not quite it. Um, and, and, and so, so the, the Creed, you know, almost 1,700 years old, it's, this, it's the core of what Christians believe. Around that, there are things that maybe you've heard Mark Driscoll or I think even Aaron has used this language of closed hand, open hand. You know, closed hand is this thing of, this is the core of Christian belief. It's found in the creed. And then there's some other things that we hold with an open hand. That doesn't mean we hold them irresponsibly. We ought to be thoughtful and through that. It just means that we understand there's different ways of looking at something through the lens of Scripture. But it does, if the Bible were a rule book, there really would be no room for that, Right? I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, think of a, sports, a sporting event. Either you get four downs to get a first down, or you don't. Like, that's the rule, right? You don't get to say, well, this time you get five downs. You know, like, no, you don't, you don't get that. That's the, it's the rule. But it doesn't quite, the whole of it doesn't quite work like that. All right, I want you to stop for a moment and turn to your tables and talk with one another and say, you know, this, which of these five approaches would you say, you know, I think I kind of leaned toward this one. I think I sort of, maybe now that I think about it, I think I tend towards this one. And it's okay. There's truth, there's value in each of these approaches. I'm going to suggest a different one today uh, that I didn't come up with um, that, that maybe works as a better whole for approaching the Bible. But take a moment and talk to one another about which one of these five uh, you find yourself maybe leaning towards and, and discuss maybe the, the good and bad of it, the, the strengths and weaknesses of that approach. Go. Did you find yourself on this list somewhere maybe? 
How many of you said, you know, I kind of like, I kind of leaned, maybe growing up, maybe not anymore, whatever, but I kind of leaned towards the textbook thing. Yeah. How many of you maybe, you know, I kind of lean towards the cookbook thing. <laughs> like, I, I kind of want to know the three keys. You know, that's all right. Uh, how many of you say, yeah, I kind of lean toward the coffee table. Like, ah, so, sort of, yeah, that's okay. And maybe magic book, you know, like sort of, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, rule book, anybody? Yeah, a lot of us. How many of you are like, man, I'm just not sure. Like, I don't, yeah, that's all right. That's good. What Joe's intention is for this week here, uh, this month here at New Life Sunday School is to say, what is the Bible fundamentally, and it is this, it is a story. Uh, it is a set of stories, for, to be sure, but there is an overarching story. And so we, we want to say right at the start here that God reveals himself through story. Now this is maybe uh, shocking, maybe inconvenient, maybe a bummer to our minds that want something more linear and want something more organized. Like, God, couldn't the first book have been called Attributes of God, Chapter 1, you know? Like, that would just be so much... I mean, I'm, we know how to do textbooks. We've had 12 years or more teaching us how to do textbooks. Like, we, we get textbooks. Why did I say 12 years? That's easy, 12. Okay, yeah, 12 years, yeah. We, 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 know how, we know how to do that. But, but story, and maybe in our minds, we tend to think about story as frivolous. It's like, oh, well, story, that's a waste of time. And most of us think of story even as fiction, and so not true, and oh, it's mythology, or fiction, or fantasy, you say, well, I don't want, it's just a story. I don't mean that. When I say the word story, I don't mean um, not true. I mean absolutely true. But there's all kinds of story. There are, there are stories in the Bible that are historical narratives. We'll talk about this next week. There are stories in the Bible that are parables. There are stories in the Bible that are uh, possibly legend. Uh, but the oh, there is one overarching story in the Bible. I think it's amazing because it's actually connect, why God reveals himself in story is actually connected to what we believe about God. Who is God? What is God at his being? Well, he is three in one, right? There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if he's three in one, that means... There's some kind of communion or community that community is at the very heart of who God is, that love and union and community is just, that's like an essential part of his, well, that's true. Well, if that's true, how does a supremely personal being reveal himself? Would it be through a list of facts or would it be through interactions with other people? Do you see what I'm saying? How does a personal God reveal himself personally through story? By saying, I called Abraham. And Abraham said, let me tell you about how he called. And Moses telling us the story of how God called it. There's all, we get this story mediated to us. It comes to us through a bunch of storytellers. Through a bunch of people who say, well, do you know how the world began? Do you know how God Began our people, he called it, and, and on and on it goes. Which is why when we read the Bible, we've got to immerse ourselves in the narratives of Scripture before looking for the imperatives of Scripture. Narratives, story, imperatives, commands. Before we say, well, what does the Bible say? And try to use the text to say, well, let's, we, let's look for the... That's good, we'll get there. 
But before we can even do that, let's find out what's going on. What's the story here? What's happening here? How how is God at work? Who are His people? What does learning about His people mean to us? I had a professor in my undergrad who said, we read the Bible to know God and to be His people. The Bible is the story of God calling a people, choosing a people, first Israel and then us as the church, now in Christ, Jew and Gentile one. We'll talk about all this in a moment. But it's fundamentally a story of how to be God's people. And so I want to know. I want to know the narratives. I want to know about Abraham. Tell me the stories of old. Tell me how it happened. Tell me how God works. Immerse ourselves in the narratives of Scripture before looking for the imperatives. Now, to to do that, we need to enter the story. We need to be willing to say, all right, I want to see what's going on and I want to get into this. This is actually a skill we know quite well if you ever watch a movie. This is what we do when we go see a movie. We, we kind of get into it. We're like, oh my gosh. And you feel what a character feels. And maybe you're the person that when something, when there's a guy sneaking up behind you, you're like, <gasps> you know, and you, you feel you are in the story. This is kind of what is supposed to happen. We're supposed to enter it. And weep with Jeremiah when Israel won't listen. We're supposed to protest with, with Mary and Martha when their brother has died and Jesus has come too late. We're supposed to feel the emotions of the psalmist when they feel like God has abandoned them. We're supposed to be like Moses, sensing a call but, but feeling afraid that we could possibly be used by God. We're supposed to enter the story like Esther and to say, Maybe I'm in this position to be used of God. We're supposed to enter the story and to look around and smell the the, the scenery and think, well, what was this like? Any goal of Bible study and digging into context and language and culture, and we'll talk about that next week, but the goal of all of that is to enter the story. It's not just to memorize facts about the Chaldeans or the Syrians. or the, yeah, the facts are helped, but the point is to get inside it. To think, gosh, what must it have been like to grow up in Babylon knowing that your ancestors were in Jerusalem and the city is burning in ruins? What must that, would that be a little bit like being removed from America and being exported to some uh, faraway place? Uh, maybe in the Middle East or something, and, or some, you know, South America, whatever it is, some far away, and knowing that New York is burning. What is that like? Enter the story. What is it like to be Job? What is it like to be David? What is it like to be Ruth? Enter the story. Because what happens when you enter the story is you recognize that the Bible has eternal relevance but historical particularity. Gordon Fee, one, I'll recommend a couple books to you that can help in this. One is Gordon Fee's book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, it's a tremendous help in this. But we're distant from the stories of Scripture in a number of ways, aren't we? We're distant from it in terms of time. Even the New Testament stories were at least, you know, 1,800, you know, 1,900, We're removed from these stories. Old Testament stories, even more, 3,500 years, whatever it is, we're removed from it by time. We're removed from it by geography, right? It's not like we're, this is Bethlehem or Egypt. I mean, this is, we're nothing like it geographically. 
We're removed from it linguistically, right? We don't speak Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. We don't know the same idioms and expressions and phrases. We're removed from it um, culturally. And so this is where tools can help because it has eternal relevance, but it has historical particularity. It happened in a particular place. It's set in the context of particular people. I, I always thought it was misleading when, when uh, uh, I've heard different youth pastors say, you know, the Bible is God's love letter to you. Well, so that's setting up a teenager from some major disappointment if they actually read the Bible. Because <laughs> which part is a love letter, you know? Isaiah? <laughs> and to, say, to know that the Bible is not first written to you. It was written to them. But it is written for you, and God does speak to you through it. But in order to first get the sense of it, we've got to go back and try to enter this story and relive it. Wow, what must this have been like? And then, secondly, we need to let the story enter us to say, wow, now that I'm inside it and kind of feel like you know, like I can see what's happening here. I realize how this is convicting me. Do you remember the moment when Nathan the prophet comes to David after David sinned with Bathsheba? Do you remember this story? And everybody's afraid. How do you tell the king he's sinned against God and he's not going to get away with it? What's that job? So Nathan comes to David. What does he do? Does he prepare a sermon? Does he come with a legal type of argument? Point number one, David, why you're guilty. And da, 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 da. Does he put David on the defensive? He tells David a story. He says, David, there was a certain man, rich man. He had all the sheep in the world he wanted, but his neighbor only had this one. And he went and he took his neighbor's sheep, did this thing. And David's like furious. And he says, you know what should happen to that man? That man should be punished and all this stuff. And Nathan says to him, you are that man. Uh-oh. That's the story entering David. See, the first part of it is David entering the story and saying, Oh, wow, no way, that guy ought to be... How could he do that? That's, that's terrible. And then to say, Uh-oh, you are that man. Uh-oh. Now the story has entered me. This is precisely what Jesus does with so many of his parables. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan where the guy's trying to say, now who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells a story and the guy's like, okay, I, I think I, I get what you're saying. And Jesus says, now he, I'm going to flip the question. You ask me who is your neighbor. I'm going to ask you who became a neighbor. He says, well, I suppose the one who showed mercy and the teacher of the law can't even get himself to say the word Samaritan. And in his response, in Jesus' story, guess what's exposed in his own heart? Prejudice? Hatred? How could a Samaritan be the hero of the story? In today's context, that might be similar to standing up and telling a story on the 4th of July about a good Muslim and saying, how dare you? There could never be a good Muslim. There could never be a Muslim that's the hero of any story. And yet, maybe that would be the point. That the story enters you and says, gosh, I guess I have hatred and prejudice towards someone else. Gosh, I guess I, I have this thing 
The story begins to enter you. There's something like this that's... um, um, Let's see what's happening here. God wants us to ingest and digest His Word. And and, and maybe a picture of this is in Revelation 10, 8 through 10. This is kind of a visual for you. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more and says, Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And and so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. It's kind of like Taco Bell after midnight, you know. It's like, it just was such a good idea at the time, you know. Five in the morning, not so much. I think that's supposed to happen to us as we take God's word seriously. As we say, all right, I'm going to enter it, but I want it to enter me. I want to eat this. I want to devour. The eating language, the, the, the bread language of his word is very much a, a, a word picture used throughout the Bible about the words of God that we're supposed to take it in. Take it in and let it work in you. A proper, healthy digestive system takes the bite, breaks it down, lets it work into your body, goes to the bloodstream, it goes, and it begins to nourish you. If you are what you eat, then may we always feast off of the Word of God. If you are what you eat, may we always feast on the Word of God. May we take these pieces and say, God, let it get inside me. Mess with me. Change me with it. That's that's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. We're never reading the Bible just kind of with our minds, but also with the Spirit. All right, Joe, I got six minutes, but I think I'm going to try this. And, uh, and then maybe recap it next week and, 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 and move on, okay? It may be helpful to think of the Bible as a play or a story in six acts. Any of you like to go see plays or, you know, you've seen a drama or Broadway or something like that, you know? Um, uh, maybe back in high school you did a Shakespeare or whatever. It, it's helpful to, to think of the Bible as a drama, a, a story of God's salvation that unfolds in six acts. Now, if you like, you could say it's a wonderful story in six chapters. I suppose you could think of it that way. Now, very few of us would start reading a story or a novel uh, and just start in the middle. Uh, very few of us would, would just, you know, go pick up, uh, I don't know, a Harry Potter book or Narnia book, whatever, and just say, chapter five, this is where I'm going to start, you know. I read to my girls almost every night, and, and they're into chapter books at the moment. And they always remember where we stopped, because we've got to pick up where we left off. I can't just go skipping around, right? You can't read chapter 5, then chapter 10. Now, does that mean you can't read the Bible out of order? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means it's very difficult to make sense of the Bible unless you know where in the story you're joining in. Does this make sense? You're joining a story already in progress. Okay, let's work with another metaphor. Lost. You can't start watching Lost in season three, episode six. Like, what? You'll be lost. So what's going on? I don't know what's going on. What happened? This is what happens is most of us are like, I'm going to just start reading the Bible. I think I'm going to read Daniel. That sounds pretty good. And the first six chapters are great. But seven through 12, you're kind of like, what? What is this? You know? Yeah. And so it's important for us to know wherever you're reading in the Bible, to know this is where it fits in the storyline. Does that make sense? Okay? The story of the Bible in six acts. 
Act 1 is creation. And if you want to write down a few chapters of the Bible, maybe in association with this, I'll just uh, shoot some out to you. Obviously, creation, Genesis 1 and 2, is the story of God making the heavens and the earth. And there's really so much that I can say about this. I'm debating whether to just give you the six acts today and then go into detail next week. I think that's what I'll do. Otherwise, we're going to rush through this and, 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 and not make anybody happy. Okay. Um, act 1 is creation. Uh, it's God beginning the world. Act 2 is the fall, Genesis 3. But I really think you can kind of see the fall as several key chapters. Genesis 3 is the story of Adam and Eve sitting against God. And so if you think of it this way, it's the fracturing of the relationship between mankind and God, right? But then there's Genesis 4 where Cain and Abel happens and brothers, a brother murders a brother. This is the fracturing of human relationships. And then you go on and there's Genesis 9 and there's all kinds of human relationships that have gone sour by this point and there's a flood and then they come back and things are starting to go pretty good. But then you have Genesis 11 where God breaks apart societies and gives them different languages. This was never his intention, but because there's already sin in human hearts, he's saying, all right, sin, inevitably sin is about separation. Sin is about separation from God, separation from one another, and the separation of societies. It's the beginning of one nation rising up against another nation. It's the beginning of one culture saying we're better than another culture. It's the beginnings of all of that because sin is about fragmentation, separation, pulling away. That's the way the Bible tells Act 2, the story of a fall. But very quickly, right after Genesis 11, what comes? Right after Genesis 12. And Genesis 12 is God calling Abraham and saying, I'm making you a great, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. This is a long act. This is, in terms of the number of years, the longest act in the Bible. It's the story of Israel. And it truthfully begins with Abraham in Genesis 12. If you've ever wondered, why does Genesis 1 through 11 race through all of these events? I mean, it's just like quick. It's just giving you like quick headlines. Boom, boom, boom. And then in Genesis 12, it starts to slow down. Because it's being told from the point of view of Israel. The backdrop is creation and fall, but this is the story of our people. And so they begin to tell you the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and eventually Joseph and all that. And I'm going to go into this more next week and kind of walk you through. I'll walk you through these six acts next week uh, in more detail at the start of it. Act four is Jesus. And we need to see Jesus not as a, a play that's happening on a different stage. I think most of us as Christians read the Bible like Israel is some drama on the side stage and then Je- and center stage has been empty and then Jesus shows up, oh, center stage, this is really the story. No, listen, you need to see it as the same story. That Jesus comes as a fulfillment of the Israel story. I'm going to tell you this next week. I'm going to show you this next week through the scripture that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy to Abraham for a reason to help us see we're in the same story. Jesus comes into it. Act 5 is then the church and the, new, and the people of God here. And what happens to Jesus, if you want to do some reading ahead of time, read Ephesians chapter 2 and even chapter 3 
about what happens, how there's a new, one new humanity, Paul calls it. One new race, one new people. P- Peter calls it a, a, a holy nation. And then finally, Acts 6 is restoration. This will be a tease for you to kind of live with these categories or these acts. And then next week we'll start by me walking through it slowly and kind of fitting in for you the characters and hopefully fitting in all the characters of the Bible, some of the main stories that have been flannel-graphed for you and, and to, you know, as kids in kids Sunday school, whatever, and, and, and help you see this flow of it. One of the, one of the great um, difficulties with teaching the Bible is sometimes we learn individual stories. And we, I know David, and I know this, and I know this, and I know this, but we have a hard time saying, now how does it fit together? But when the Jews told their story to each other, they knew how it fit together. They knew this overarching thing. This is a story of God creating a a world, seeing sin begin to break this world apart, and God choosing a family to use out of whom would come the Messiah. And the Messiah in himself, in his death and resurrection, would bring everything back together. The end of the story, and I'll say a lot about this next week, the end of the story is not evacuation. <laughs> Let's get out of here. This whole world's going to burn quick. The end of the story is not compensation. Well, you've been a good boy, Johnny. Here's a sticker. You know? It's not consolation. I'm so sorry that life on earth was terrible. Have a mansion, will you? But the story, the way John envisions it in Revelation, is about restoration. It's about a God whose purposes cannot be stopped. It's about a God who no matter what happens and what sin or what choice or what evil breaks apart His world, it's about a Creator God who cannot be stopped. And that, my friends, is good news. Because the hope of Scripture is not that nothing bad will ever happen to you. The hope of Scripture is that God and His love and His purpose will win in the end. That God will triumph. That God will bring about restoration. So next week, we'll start right here with this and walk through it slowly. And then we'll go through another kind of lens for the meta narrative. And then maybe if we have time, we'll do a couple quick things about how to study the Bible. Does that sound good? All right. Hey, this is fun for me. Let me pray, and then I'll let you go. Father, thank you that you are the creator God. You are a good God. Thank you that you are the God of salvation. Thank you that no matter what we do or evil does or the devil does or whatever, no no matter what, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your plan to bring it all back together, to restore, to make new, to make right, cannot be stopped. And this story of your word is the story of salvation. Ultimately the story of you working in your world to redeem it. Help us to see that even in our own hearts tonight, uh, today. Even in our own lives, let us see that story of you at work in our own lives, bringing things back together again. Restoring, healing, saving recreating, making new. Do that in our hearts, our lives, our friendships, our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's thank Glenn for teaching us.
All right, everybody. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.